as I went in there, I'm nervous. And then I pop into the tent and literally when I walked in and started seeing the action, I mean, this word of chaos, all my nerves went away. And I will tell you, I feel like the nervousness went away because you started working. But at the same time, I felt like I had been there before because being a USU graduate, I had done Operation Bushmaster. And I'll tell you, it within my mind, go, oh my goodness, Bushmaster, 50 to 60 mass casualty scenarios that we practiced during that evolution were just imprinted on me. And I was like, gosh, this is insane. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Navy Captain Dr. Robert A. Leota to War Docs. Dr. Leota is a United States Naval Academy and Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences graduate. He is a flight surgeon and a board certified radiologist with advanced fellowship training in cardiovascular radiology. He has served in multiple roles in Navy medicine and has deployed to a combat zone. You can learn more about his bio on wardogspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about Dr. Leota's operational experiences as a flight surgeon in Japan as well as in Southwest Asia. He also describes his role as Associate Dean for Recruitment and Admissions for USUs and outlines some of the many remarkable opportunities available to students and faculty and provides some sage advice for those who may consider the military medicine pathway. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Navy Captain Dr. Robert Leota to War Docs. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Doug, thanks so much, and Wayne, for having me with you today. This is this is great. Really excited to get to talk to you guys, and really just a, a big fan and what you guys are doing. Well, thank you, Rob. You obtained your Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from the Naval Academy, and then attended medical school at the Uniformed Services University. What was your motivation to join the Navy? I have just had always loved the water, and my grandfather served in World War II, was an electrician's mate, really got that trade. The four years he served during World War II said that changed his whole life. Then actually went on to build really all of the highways. I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And so all of the interstate highways, he was a part of that building as the electricians and building the cement factors and things along that way. So I always heard his stories about when he served and how much he really admired the Navy. And really, the parents were, we were sitting at the table. I was a sophomore in high school. And they said, Rob, where are you thinking about going to college? And then we were sitting there and I remember the Army football game was going to be coming on. And I thought, what about one of the service academies? And particularly the Naval Academy. And so I said that at the table and my parents said, well, let's, we'll make a trip down there this summer to visit. It's only about, it was only about six hours from where I grew up in Ohio. We drove down here. And when I saw the campus and the water and the place where I actually marched around that summer, I, I fell in love with it and I did everything I could to get there. I knew at that time I wanted to be a physician, but I also knew I just wanted to be a part of this this institution. I wanted to be part of the Navy. And I thought, gosh, even if I don't get to go to medical school, being five years as an officer was going to be fantastic. And it was just really also the idea of like, I'm going to go through something far and can I do it? And also along the way, I'm going to develop a lot of friends and, and great friendships throughout that. And really now looking back almost 30 years later, I got all of that from it. And, and that's really what set that in motion. And I'll be honest, I only applied to the Naval Academy and never applied to the West Point, never applied to the Air Force Academy. It was really that draw of the water for me to do that with it. So you started your medical training in 2001. You initially started in surgery. I'm more interested, though, in where were you on 9-11? Because I guess you were an intern. And how did your experience at Walter Reed impact your training and future career goals? I was rotating through the emergency department at Walter Reed the day of 9-11. And in fact, I remember Actually, there was a there was a TV on in the waiting room, and I remember all of us being able to go over there and hear that and look at what was happening. So I distinctly remember that. And at the same time, I had one of my other good buddies, another fellow surgical intern and a fellow radiologist, Hassan Hobbs, was down at Washington Hospital Center. And so I was actually in touch with him as well. And so we didn't know what was going to happen. In fact, the ER, we with all the casualties, especially with the Pentagon, 
we were, the whole hospital was ready and, and ready to take casualties and injured. And Hassan was down on the front lines because a lot of the burn victims were going right to Washington Hospital Center. So he was a part of that team and he was another surgical intern down there with our residents who were also rotating down there and our attendees that actually also rotated through Washington Hospital Center. And I remember feeling, can't believe this happens. But at the same time, like we were good knowing like I was poised to be in position to help. And then that's exactly what we did. And so being a part of that, that whole process, then even I think two months later, I rotated down in hospital center and I could see all the names of the people who were treated there like, of that horrible day. And some of those casualties ultimately came to Walter Reed, but we weren't the first spot where they were coming. We didn't know what was going to be coming as time went on with that. But as a result of that, I still remember now that winter as an intern, we had our first casualties from Afghanistan coming to Walter Reed. And, and I'll never forget, it was an 18-year-old. His first name was Travis. I still pray for him. And he lost every limb in an accident in Afghanistan. One of the first, he was a Marine that we were taking care of. And I will tell you, the heroism of him, though, was apparent in the day-to-day just going into his room. I mean, he had the biggest smile on his face. He was, the, he was the most motivated patient I've ever seen. And he was also surrounded by a wonderful family and many friends. And they were just all there supporting him. And I just remember every time walking into, into his room, realizing this is, this is really a tough, tough individual. And yet he motivated me with his optimism, despite this horrific injuries that he had. And I often wonder what he's doing, but if I had to put a bet on it, he's doing really well because of his mental attitude and dealing with this and the care that he got and making the most of everything, even though he gave the ultimate sacrifice doing well for his lens for our new nation with that. So following your internship, you performed an operational tour before starting residency. And that was something that was fairly commonplace 20 years ago. Is that something that's still commonplace today where, where folks are doing an operational tour in military medicine between internship and residency? So for the Navy, it is, although it's gradually changing and actually before about really 40 to 60% of people would do operational tours before finishing or finishing residency in the Navy, that is. However, in 2026, the Navy has said that they're going to be really much similar to the Air Force and the Army in the sense that 90% plus will go straight through for residency. And so they've been gradually upsticking the percentage so that every year now, as we get ready to the class of 2026 graduating, that the Navy is going to have less people going initially doing general medical officer tours. And actually, more of them will be getting contracts 90% plus. And if you want to take or if you get your first choice, you're going to get a contract for your residency and then come back. They'll fill those GMO tours with board certified physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs, similar to the way that the Army and the Air Force do it. So, so that is changing now. And certainly now, even talking to our students, the percentages of Navy graduates from HPSP and U.S. are going straight through to residency. Like that percentage is only higher from that 30 to 40 percent to gradually ticking up. So you trained to become a naval flight surgeon in 2003. We've interviewed people who have done both the Army and Air Force flight surgeon courses. Tell us about the Navy flight surgeon course and what ultimately is a flight surgeon in the Navy supposed to do? So what's nice about the Navy flight surgery course, it's nine months long. And when you first get there, you'll go to the schoolhouse and really learn aerospace medicine specific things that every flight surgeon needs to know. And, and you'll, you'll get a review on the common ailments for ENT, common ailments for neurology, common things that you'll see, but also drug interactions, what pilots can fly and not fly on, and learning about mishap investigations and also learning about the aeromedical waiver guidelines for the Navy and how we actually decide who gets to be going to flight status. And what happens with people who are already in a flight status that then develop a progress. So you learn that in the first part of the phase of the training. But then the second half of the phase of the training is you actually go to aviation pre-flight instruction with, with normal active duty line officers who are starting the, the aviation pipeline and you can go right in with them. And so what we call, it's called API, it's aviation pre-flight instruction, where you actually do the ground school with pilots and you actually are in a regular class down in Pensacola, the birthplace of naval aviation, where everyone starts. You go through that aviation pre-flight instruction, just like you're going to be a, a normal pilot. And then you go to primary flight school. Back in the 90s, flight surgeons of Navy would solo. You would actually do 13 fans and you would solo the T-34 at that time. And just like what pilots do, 
When I went through, we got the fly, but we got seven FAMs, not 13, but seven FAMs in fixed wing T34. And then we did seven FAMs in the helos, which is a little different. So we never got the solo. They instituted that because a lot of flight surgeons were get sent to helo squadrons and they have no experience in a helo. And so they were given flight surgeons both experience in the fixed wing and in the rotary wing aircraft with it. So what did the pilots think, the ones that were actually going to be pilots for their career, think with these physicians that were next to them in the courses? You know, they're brand new. These are ensigns in the Navy. We were actually outranked them as lieutenants being medical officers with it. So we really just had a lot of fun because they were new to the Navy. This is for us. We were new to the operational side of things. So we really bonded well with them. And I mean, you're studying with them. You're working with them, you're helping each other out, having parties together with your classes and different things like that. I enjoyed it. In fact, I still have lots of pictures with all those guys that are now aviators down the line. And so it was it was really good like that. Also, at the same time, we got to see what they were worried about. And they picked our braids a lot about the medical side. They're obviously all physically qualified at this point, but just getting getting to interact their first times with flight surgeons with it. So I think it was really fun time. And even our instructors, they pushed us and worked us in, in the cockpit. And I'll even say like, I will say pilots don't work as hard as physicians, but when they do work, it is tough. And, and what I can say is I was not a very good pilot. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. You fly two hours in an aircraft and you felt like you just ran a marathon and to be ahead on the radios and to be ahead of the aircraft and you're moving fast. It's hard and it's intense and it's taxing. But what was also nice at the same time is they don't work. You're not on coal every third night the way we were coming out of internship. And so we, we had lives again. And so learned how to kite surf down there, did a lot of swimming, biking, running triathlons. I mean, we just had a blast. So before residency, you also went out in an operational assignment as the medical department head for Marine Tactical Electronic Warfare Squadron 1 based out of Cherry Point, North Carolina. But you guys deployed to Japan and had some other detachments that I suppose you went on to Guam and, and to Korea. Tell us about your duties and any memorable experiences that you have from that assignment. And, and did you feel like you were prepared to do what they were asking you to do? So I had 180 Marines. They were my Marines. And I had to be prepared to get them ready for that deployment and make sure they're medically ready. And then basically took care of them. And so I will tell you that I did feel well prepared being a USU grad. I knew what I needed to do to look at the preventative medicine, what immunizations they needed, what did I need to take with me when we went on deployment, what medical assets I needed, and also just knowing where were all the surrounding medical assets at higher levels of care that I needed to know where they were and how do I get my Marines there if I, if I need to take them to a higher level of care. So I felt really well prepared for that. I was really excited for it. It was going to be my first operational deployment. It was like I've arrived finally all these years, training at the Naval Academy, training at USIS, then finally being in the fleet, as we call it, in the Navy. And so it was an exciting time. I would say we deployed to Iwakuni, Japan. So that's about 45 minutes from Hiroshima. And during that time, I read the book Hiroshima and was able to walk that river, walk the city. And just really to read that book, see what, what happened when we dropped the atomic bomb there and to just sort of look at, they had still some ruins, A-bomb dome, which was a building that they left destroyed. You know, it was really a neat experience for me to actually go visit there, see the peace center and everything, but at the same time, reflect on, gosh, what this must have been like during that time. So during that deployment, we were based out of Iwakuni, but we went on short detachments for six weeks all over the area. And it was actually as a flight surgeon, I got to fly everywhere. In fact, when I came home from that deployment, my mom and dad asked, hey, how was that deployment? I said, you really can't pay money to get to do what I did. I mean, I lived the rock star resistance out there in the sense that we could take the jet anywhere and, and travel to all these areas, go visit Iwo Jima and different things like that, that you could never pay money to get to do what I got to do to just see all around that whole area of Asia. And so one, I felt very just blessed the ability to do that. At the same time, we had we had operational missions. I mean, we were flying the DMZ. And so we spent four weeks in Korea. And our big job was actually basically picking up the signatures of all of their, their surface-to-air missile systems. I mean, we're electronic warfare. We're trying to pick up where all those are because they move them in different things. But we're basically getting an imprint on where all of those things were in the case that if something did break out, we would be able to jam those systems and protect our airs assets as they fly over. So there was a real life mission to it as well. And getting that experience, getting briefed and, and knowing that where we were flying and what we were doing and, and what was out there. And it was just really special because I, I had all my Marines out there and then I was their 
it's just a great, great privilege to be able to take care of all these people where you're there. They all had my cell phone number. I mean, 180 of them, it didn't matter if they were private first class or they were the, the commanding officer. I was their doc and, and, uh, and they knew they were well taken care of and that they knew that I was going to do everything to help them out. We really just had a lot of fun with that. We did have injuries and we had, uh, we had lots of different things that we took care of. I got to really see our U.S. assets in action, but also I had to deal with the Japanese physicians as well, because there were times when we were in environments where we were away from any U.S. base or, or even had the, since Hiwakuni was so far away from our big hospitals out there, sometimes we had to utilize civilian hospitals to do that. In fact, I had a Marine who had a severe ankle infection, and I was worried that I had him on antibiotics IV, but he was, he was still spiking temperatures, and I I was just worried, gosh, could there be an abscess there in that ankle as well that I'm missing since the IV antibiotics were covering everything. And I felt like, gosh, we need to get a CT and we were on, we were on a mission. And so I, I was able to bring him to a Japanese hospital, get a CT and actually get him seen by an orthopedic surgeon just to make sure, hey, there's nothing else that needed to be done surgical for him as they did it. And they ended up accepting him and taking him on for a few days. He didn't need any surgery and we didn't see an abscess on the CT, but they actually monitored him inpatient just because he was getting pretty sick and to make sure that the IV antibiotics were working on that. So, so that was also a lot of fun too, getting to work with the Japanese physicians and their surgeons, me as the flight surgeon managing and, and sort of being the liaison between the skipper and our unit and the, the local physicians who were also helping to take care of our Marine. In 2004, you had an operational deployment, and this was as the medical department head for the Marine Unmanned Vehicle Squadron 2 to Al-Takadam, Iraq, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Tell us about that unit and that deployment, and what responsibilities did you have as a physician and Navy flight surgeon for that? I came back from Asia, or UDP, UDP which, is our, which was our deployment to Asia, and then as soon as we came back, another unit was leaving and they needed a flight surgeon. And I actually volunteered to go with them because they were going to al Iraq, right in the Sunni Triangle, about seven miles from Fallujah and 11 miles from Ramadi, which was the big area where the Marines were doing a lot of work in that conflict. And so with DMU-2, when my skipper found out I volunteered to go, he actually gave me the opportunity to go become a mission commander. And uh, VMU-2 were the first drones. I mean, this is the pioneer. And so when the skipper said, hey, I'm going to send you back to Pensacola for four weeks to, to make a mission commander to fly the pioneer. I said, oh, I love Pensacola. I've been down there. And so I got to go back down there, learn how to fly the, those drones. And, and was basically when I got to Iraq, was not only their doctor, another squadron, about 220 Marines taken care of. I was also on schedule as a VMU-2 mission commander just to be integrated fully with my whole unit. And then also down there, we had, obviously I took care of my regular sick call, but we had the STP or the surgical shock trauma platoon that was stationed in Altacottam. And that was really our, our level one trauma center tent hospital right next to the action. And so I would stay and call there once a week. I would be at the surgical shock trauma platoon. And because I was a flight surgeon, I also flew Kazovac missions. So once a week, I flew Kazovac with our Kazovac teams out there. And so... Being in that deployed environment, and I was doing a lot of different things, but at the same time, had this great, great, great feeling that, gosh, I was needed. And wherever I was, I was needed. And at the same time, when we had mass casualties, and in fact, my first mass casualty when I was out there occurred on Holy Thursday of uh, 2005. And I still distinctly remember this because we were at mass and uh, mass was ending. It was about 1930 hours. All of a sudden, oh, every physician had a radio and the sirens on the base start going off. You're hearing some explosions. It just, I mean, literally it was the end of the mass. And when, when we get a mass casualty like that, every physician on base gets called to the surgical truck, start trial platoon. And so on that day, 35 casualties were coming in. And I remember leaving the sit of the service, running up the hill a little to the surgical shark trial platoon and HM1 Johnny Garner was my foreman. He was always with me. We're running up there. The room my first pound and I was nervous. And I was like, gosh, what this is, what's this going to be like? This will be my first mass casualty. I had stood call up there, but we would get one or two casualties. I mean, sort of like a, just the regular trauma that I was used to at Washington Hospital Center coming in to the trauma bay. This was, this was different. And the sirens, the explosions. And as I'm running up there, big ambulance tanks are driving up because they were bringing in wounded. Normally, I mean, ambulances coming in or the helos are coming in, but they were so close to where there was an attack. It was actually, there was an Iraqi unit that was forming up, like the Iraqi national forces that we were, our allies, 
And then our units were there and there was basically some civilians walked by and threw grenades into the formation and into several tanks that were in this park there. And so they were just bringing the casualties up. The fastest wind was driving them up in these Abrams tanks coming right up to the search for sharp Charlton. Well, as I went in there, I'm nervous and then I pop into the tent and literally when I walked in and started seeing the action, I mean, this order of chaos, all my nerves went away. And I'll tell you, I feel like the nervousness went away because you started working. But at the same time, I felt like I had been there before because being a USU graduate, I had done Operation Bushmaster. And I'll tell you, it within my mind, go, oh my goodness, Bushmaster, 50 to 60 mass casualty scenarios that we practiced during that evolution were just imprinted on me. And I was like, gosh, this is the same. So as I got my five patients that I was monitoring, that I was working on because I, I was getting walked at walking wounded and an individual who had, who basically had, they had shrapnel injuries to the chest and the arms, but we were basically had to one, assess them to see if they needed chest tubes, how they were bleeding, monitoring them. They even had a eight year old little boy who had shrapnel in his skull, but they shot the x-ray. It was just a superficial shrapnel stuck in his calvarium and that we, I was able to manage all these, right? And I got like Corman Carters right with me. And I still remember when I was taking care of that little boy, I was like, ah, I can't see anything in this light. All of a sudden, Garner throws on a headlamp and he's like, Doc, you got light now. And so I, I had a few little instruments to try to pull the shrapnel. And I'm like, I can't get this out. Like it's, it's too deep in here after we shot the x-ray. Then I, Garner throws me as Leatherman. He's like, I got it all cleaned up for you, Doc. And I was able to use that Leatherman to pull it out. And when I finally got that little boy all cleaned up, and dressed his wounds. And I'll never forget that smile on his face. I mean, he, I have a, I have a seven year old now. I'm six kids. Well, one of my middle children, seven right now. And I still like remember that little boy smiling. He was so stoic because he wasn't crying. He wasn't complaining throughout all that. But when we were done, big smile on his face. And I remember thinking at that moment, I'm like, gosh, this could be, I, at that time, I didn't have a child, but just thinking, gosh, if this was, we we're back in the United States, this is someone because actually his parents had actually gotten, were able to come in. We had the translator and I remember thinking, gosh, if you were my neighbors, we'd be having a 4th of July picnic. But there was just a natural, I mean, that was like the humanism of medicine, like the natural bond, being able to help and be a part of that with them. So we worked throughout that night. We only lost two of the 35 that came in or all the people that were injured. It was just pretty neat. And I remember coming out of that surgical shark trauma platoon at six in the morning the next day and Carter giving him a hug and say, man, we did this, man. And we were part of a great team that night working through it. And I still remember we're driving back to our unit and my skipper said he was, he was actually, the commanding officer was out there and he saw me coming in early that morning. He's like, doc, you guys did good last night. And I know you were up all night working on it. And it was just something special about being able to do that and knowing like, gosh, this is, this is what I trained to do and feeling really needed. Also just being able to fly Kazovac. One of the things I did want to share, because I think it's really the camaraderie and the heroism of everyone out there. So I, I flew a lot with HM3 Hess, who was 18 years old. I only had like six months of medical training as a foreman. And uh, that individual saved so many lives. And uh, I remember it was one night there was a firefight in Ramadi going on. We could hear it on the radios. And we were the on-call birds to go get them. But obviously, they're not going to fly us in with bullets flying. And so, but we could hear everything going on and we were just, we were just waiting. I mean, the pilots, the whole crew were all ready to leave as soon as it was clear that we were safe to come in and pick up casualties and pick up people. And it wasn't until really like one or two in the morning that we were able to go out and, and get the wounded from that firefight. And as we were landing, we we're picking up. In fact, we picked up like 12 casualties with two of our birds that were landing. Hess was in the other one. I was in our, our 46. And as we were taking wounded, um, we were taking them, but at the same time, we actually had three fallen angels, Marines that were lost. No one even knew that they were, their families didn't know anything yet. But in the midst of all that, as we're bringing these in, there's Marines who are dirty and they're battle-worn and they're at attention saluting those individuals as they're coming. And this will bring them on in the aircraft. And I'll, I'll never forget that because these individuals, no, no one's watching that, but no, they were, they were respecting those three Marines that were, that were down. And I'll never forget that reverence. In that ability, those three Marines that were, that we took on that were, that had died that night, I still remember thinking their families don't know yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to pray for those individuals and their families. And I, to this day, I still do that. I mean, those, those three really touched me. At the same time, that same group were taking care of these wounded. And the plan was to take them to what we call Cash North, the next level of care, not to take them back to the surgical shark trauma platoon where we were, but to take them up to the regular hospital up in Northern Baghdad. 
And so we're flying up. And as soon as we're up in the air, about one or two minutes later, it passes on the radio going, sir, like I can't, I'm losing a Marine. Like I'm doing everything to resuscitate him, but I, I, I'm losing them. And, uh, and our CEO was flying my helicopter or one of the, the helicopter CEOs was flying. And he's like, he's like, Hester, what do we need to do? Is he going to make it to Baghdad? Or do you think we need to go back to, to the STP? And Hess is like, I think we need to turn around, sir. And so Skipper's like, Roger that. We're going to bring them down. And so we actually turned the helicopters around. So within five minutes could get the, get this one individual off our helicopter, get them to the surgical shark trial dune at Altacano. And when we landed, we didn't know what happened. We just offloaded them. Right. And so, but then we went and we took all our wounded up to Cash North and, and they were stabilized with some significant wounds, but at the same time, they were stable enough to get up to Cash North. Well, then we went back, we turned back around, we were coming back to the surgical shark trauma team. And as when, when we landed, that individual who we dropped off was ready for transport. But what happened was, is that individual, because there were such bad burglars, had a, a compartment syndrome over his chest and they actually had to do aversion fasciotomies on him at the surgical shock trauma platoon. And so that, that Marine ended up living, but because of Hess's decision to turn us around, that he wouldn't have made it up to cash. I don't think he would have made it up to for the 20, 30 minute helicopter ride up, but they were able to stabilize him, do the fasciotomies. And then we were able to pick him back up and just turn back around and took him back up to the, to the hospital at Cash Northern. And I remember as we came back down, and finally finished flying that night. I'm walking off. I'm like, Hess, like you saved his life. And this is an individual who was doing that every day, but it was just uh, one of those moments. These were, these were fellow Americans and young Americans making life and death decisions and doing that day in and day out. And I remember giving him another big hug and saying, I'm just proud of you. That was fantastic work. So for the listeners that don't know, if you have a circumferential burn around your chest and torso, you actually can't expand your lung so that you can exchange oxygen so that the air can move from your mouth down to your lungs. And so in order to free that space, you have to perform an incision on both sides of the chest and across the chest so that you can allow the, the lung to expand because the leather skin won't allow the chest to expand. So after that incredible experience in the deployed environment, you came back to the States and, and trained as a radiologist. And we previously spoken to an army radiologist but we were kind of wondering, what does a Navy radiologist do, especially in the deployed environment? And you guys are deployed on ships. How does a, a radiologist work on a ship? Actually, they don't have any radiologists on ships. And in fact, all of the ships, how do you think that's shot on a ship with the, well, actually, I, I take that back. If we go on the Mercy or the Comfort, we'll have radiologists on board. However, but just the regular Navy will not have deployed radiologists there. And in fact, we read all of the ship films from Walter Reed, actually, where I'm stationed now. And so when we're on call, you read all the ship films from across the East and West Coasts and all over the world. That being said, though, radiologists do deploy and, we're, and we are out there. And so when we are deployed, we're usually at higher echelons of care where they actually have ultrasound kit or they have ultrasound CT capabilities. And in that regard, we function the same way where we function with the healthcare teams and we assist with reading the films when the trauma come in. And, and I think the things that are a little different, at least it's the same as being working in a level, you know, trauma's coming in and when you're doing trauma radiology coming in, and you make quick reads and you, you talk to the, the surgeons and the, the ER teams that are coming in asking, what, what, what's your assessment? What are all the major injuries that you're recognizing? And that's really our big role as radiologists. But what in a deployed setting, the, the difference is sometimes is to make sure, is there any unexploded ordinance that you see on these films? And that's a, it's a big deal before they want to do anything. And is there evidence that there could be unexploded shells or grenades or different things that are on there? And so I think that's what's different in the deployed setting sometimes is that we are also cautious and looking for that. And not many do residency programs are teaching you what unexploded ordinance looks like on a, on a film because it's not a common thing to see. But in a worst time setting, it is. And it's certainly something that we're very cautious about because we want to make sure that our, our medical assets and people caring for them are safe too. And they're not getting into harm's way at that, at that well. So I'd say those are the big differences. But at the same time, it's also just the normal care, interpreting ultrasounds, interpreting x-rays uh, that are shot and giving that expertise for the assessments that we can deliver based off of the imaging findings. I think the other side in the deployed setting is the interventional radiologist who can actually then, if you're able to be under fluoro, do interventional procedures to stop bleeding or embolization. And so in the sense of if you have, you have trauma, but you have a pelvic bleed, you're going to need to do an angiogram and potentially do embolization procedures to actually stop that bleeding. 
And that's the big role for is the interventionalist. And so in the Navy, my experiences are only with the Navy is we always deploy with an interventional radiologist. There's usually two radiologists deployed together, a diagnostic radiologist and an interventional radiologist at the same time. So that can do those procedures. And that's the big, I guess, really the operational side that radiologists bring to the battlefield in that component. But we have to be at places where our skills can be used. So I'm, I'm curious. So you have someone who has appendicitis or a trauma and there's a CT scan done out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the image is sent back to Walter Reed. Is that image the same as what you'd expect? The same slices? Does it have motion associated with the rocking of the ship? I mean, is what's the difference between reading it in the United States when someone's in a hospital and reading one of these out from the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, what's pretty neat is it's pretty good. Now, there is no ship that's got a CT scanner. So the only ones that do are your hospital ships. And so I'll tell you, on the hospital ships, beautiful. It's no different. In fact, I could probably give it to civilian radiologists. They won't even, even comment about the technique. They'll say it's perfectly diagnostic. And to be honest with you, even the ship films, our radiology techs are so good. And our corpsmen, they, they shoot great films. I mean, occasionally it's like, oh, this is a weird, this is a weird view or it's not an appropriate view. And we'll call the ship and we can always get them on the SAP phone and say, hey, I need another review. That axillary view is not good or the different views that they may be giving me, I'd say, or I want another view just to try to make the diagnosis. But I'll be honest, it is pretty neat to see and how quick it can happen. I mean, we're talking digital transmissions. Where and then they can call us. I mean, the ships will call us in the reading room, and you're on call, and you're talking to the ship real time with it. And so we have all of those all of those capabilities. And what's even better now too, and this has evolved since throughout my career, our IT guys are so good that if a CT was shot in Rota, but then they and this is Rota, Spain, and they quickly flew them here. And I can get those images sent to me directly within like five, 10 minutes. Those images are over to us. Our IT guys are so good. I just make a quick call and say, hey, I need these images now to help us because this, this medevac just came to Walter Reed and I heard that they were imaged elsewhere. So, and then we can actually interpret those and, and double read on those. Yeah. So the ship has x-rays that you mentioned ultrasound. Do they also have sonographers that are sending back images or is it really just confined to x-ray imaging? It's mostly x-ray images. I have never read a Teleran ultrasound imaging. And mo- mainly those would be either just done by the docs who, if they, the clinicians that have ability to read ultras, you know, just on the fly and their, their ability to do that. Mainly because ultrasound's one of those things that it's hard to do if you're not there or to interpret if you're not there. And so really in the deployed setting, like I would be there doing the ultrasound myself and then interpret it. And so, yes. So for ultrasound, I would say that's not routinely done. In fact, I've never done teleradiology ultrasound exams because of the fact that I want to be able to walk in and double check because a tech can tell me it's something, but I I need to really see it and make sure that that's what they're showing me because they can show you an image and say, oh, that's supposed to be the ovary. And then I'm like, well, that looks funny. Is that for real? And so you want to double check that or you want to say, where's that artifact or that doesn't look right to me with that. So and that's why you want to be able to go in and do that exam yourself. So I want to shift gears just a little bit here and talk about your current job as Associate Dean for Recruitment and Admission at the Uniform Services University. And the question I would have for you is, why should a pre-med student consider use use as a training option? And what is your biggest recruitment challenge? So I think the reason to consider use is, and I often tell people, if you have any interest in the military or serving and, and the adventure of it, excites you, I think you should apply to the health profession scholarship programs and uses. And then once you find out where you get accepted, weigh the pros and cons of for your own individual self, what's the best place to go? Where's the best place to train? And where's uh, what's best for them? I think for me, I, I was in that situation being a graduate of the Naval Academy. I got accepted to civilian schools. I also got accepted to uses. So I had to weigh the pros and cons of why would I want to go to uses or why would I want to go to a civilian medical school? And, and those will be unique and, and interesting to both. So, and I don't think there's a bad decision. I mean, I think you can go HPSV or you can go to USIS. I, what I do know is I know USIS and I think I was well-trained as a physician at USIS. I think the education is phenomenal. I think the extra training that we do, our contingency operation training with Operation Gunpowder, Operation Bushmaster, all of those experiences, like I was well-prepared. I knew what it would be like to be a GMO. I knew what it like would be to, to function as an officer. And, and the reason I knew those things were not only just my professors, 
but also my classmates. We at least have 30 to 40% prior service individuals in the classes. And it's pretty neat when you're doing that intersection and you're working with a Greek gray or a, you're working with a, a Navy SEAL. And when you're doing that, you can ask them, hey, what did the physicians do that you liked or what did they not like or how did they get along with the squadron or the unit? And so for all of those reasons, I think those were just added benefits. Do you need it for medical school? No, but you're certainly going to be going to be well-versed in knowing about military medicine if you come to USU for sure. I think another thing that to consider uses is the idea that every graduate of our medical school goes to the same practice and no other medical school can say that. We all go to the military health system. And so you're going to run into your classmates. And one of the statistics at USIS is that 60 to 70% of every graduating class ends up doing a 20-year career. And so you are, you end up doing a 20-year career. You're going to run into classmates who are taking care, will take care of you, will maybe take care of your family, or maybe they may be the consulting position on the other line when you need their help in an austere environment or when you're deterred. And so, man, I didn't even know that. Like, actually, when I made that decision, I wasn't even thinking about that. And being a senior officer now, it's nice when the Army Surgeon General's office calls and they're like, Colonel, so-and-so needs this. And I'm like, that's my classmate. But I could just give a quick call and, and get the down and dirty on what, what does the Surgeon General need? And so, and it's nice. Also, it goes back both ways. I got a question. Now I got a direct line to the Surgeon General's office to get an answer. And so it's nice having friends and colleagues in those spaces that I, I know personally or that I, I've, I've had to share experiences with. So that's, that's really a strength of it. I think the one last thing with USIS that really makes it work, and especially now, I think in the setting where now with pass failed step one scores, like there's a less of a discriminator in picking for residencies. At USIS, you're going to already start building a professional reputation as a student, and you're going to get to travel through many hospitals. They have clerkships and advanced clinical rotations at those hospitals. You get a lot of face time with groups and areas where you may want to do your residency. And so what that means is, yes, you may do a sub-internship in vascular surgery at Brook Army Medical Center or VAMSI. But at the same time, you made the next month, maybe on the internal medicine service when they're when they're actually consulting medicine, and now you're basically the medical student that's also, again, interacting with their residents and their teams. And so they're getting to see you a lot. And so you're in a known entity, maybe, when you're applying for that, that residency. And I think being at USIS, you get a lot of FaceTime. That's where you're getting trained, and you're being a part of that system. And, I see, and those are some of the indirect things that may strengthen your application or let you really see and know, hey, this is where I want to train, or this is, this is where I want to do that. I think Challenges with recruiting, I wish more people knew about us. That's the biggest thing. I think uh, a lot of people would choose to come here if they knew about our school. I get that all the time. It's like, I've never heard of your medical school. And we're doing some things to try to correct that, getting the word out. In fact, being on your show here for some people to go, oh, just then have them take a pause and even consider it. And, and I think uh, there's many students who had six schools on. They got into four of those schools or five of those schools. And then all of a sudden they come to USU for their interview day visit or what we have now in the COVID era, the post-interview day visits. And all of a sudden they see, man, this school has a lot to offer. Um, and we end up being their first choice and they enroll at USU. That being said, when I say a lot of people don't know about us, we still get a lot of applications. It's a competitive class. I mean, we have a very competitive medical school. So on that note, with the application process, what is the acceptance rate at USIS and what advice would you give to those who are interested in applying to the university to have a competitive advantage for admissions? What is it that the admissions panel is looking for? Our acceptance rate, acceptance rates are about 9%, 9 to 10%. That's where we're at. We get about 3,300, 3,000 applications to fill a class of 171. And so when you look at that data with it, what is our admissions committee looking for? I think first and foremost, our mission, and like all medical schools, you should look at their mission. Our mission is to train those who will go to take care of those who go in harm's way. So that's pure and simple. We want to train efficient, good, and, and competent physicians and clinicians. And that's our main mission with that. And so when you're applying to our school, the first thing that the committee wants to see is, does this person have any preclinical experience? Do they even know what they're getting into? And so I would say you can't get into our school if you haven't had some type of preclinical experience. That is being a scribe, several hundred hours shadowing physicians. That may even be an allied health profession, EMT, radiology tech, pharmacy tech, anesthesia tech, surgical techs, all of those things. But at the same time, also maybe experience taking care of a loved one, working as a volunteer with hospice, or even doing clinical research where you're consenting patients and things like that. So we're looking at 
preclinical experience is really necessary. I think the second thing we look for is where is someone giving back with their skills and talents? And that's sort of, it's put into community service, but I think it's what are they doing outside of just the requirements of school and different things. And what we believe is that really translates into a good officer who's a team player and willing to give up themselves for the team. And so I would say if we see someone who has 4.0 and a 90th percentile MCAT, but they're not giving back anyway or doing anything for others or following passions outside of what they're doing for themselves, they may not even get an interview because we want to see someone who's working in groups or working with others or putting in time for the team because we know individuals who have that background or who have already demonstrated that aptitude are going to continue to do that when they're in our military health system, both at USIS and then and beyond. So I think that's the second big area that we'd like to see. And the third big one that's unique to us, and we're like all other medical schools, but I think the third one that I like to hit on is leadership potential. And that's not just saying, oh, I'm president of my group or vice president. Name positions aren't as big of a deal that we're looking for. They're helpful if you have them. But what I think it's really, it's how you describe an activity. And a perfect example of that is you may be working through college as a waiter, right? But when you describe that activity to us, you tell us, well, how are you working? Does your boss trust you to open the restaurant, to close the restaurant? When they hire new people, do they ask you to train them? If you're describing that activity in that way, those are soft signs of leadership potential where you have the trust and that that you are uh, a very competent employee that's also trusted with new activities where maybe even the manager trusts you to take over the managerial duties if they're taken away and different things like that. And so that's what those are things that if it's woven into your application or in the descriptions of activities you're doing, that's what our co- our committee will comment on. What's their leadership potential? What is the what have they demonstrated so far with that? And I think those three big areas. Obviously, we do a holistic review, so there's, the committee has a lot of things. Yes, they're going to look at research, which is important, but you don't need a thousand hours of research for our medical school to get into because our main mission is not to have. We know you're going to do research when you get to our medical school, but it, the, the mission of the school is not to make a, a clinician scientist. You don't need to have your own bench lab or different things like that. We do have individuals in the military do that, but that's not, we're not getting a class of 171 that are going to be able to do that. That's not our main mission. So those are some of the differences between other schools that may have those requirements or expect that based off of their mission. And for people listening that may be interested in ways to volunteer, we had an interview with Steve Peff, who's the chief volunteer organizer through the Red Cross at Walter Reed for the MATC. And so he actually, in his interview, talks about the ways in which people through the Red Cross can volunteer and have those clinical hours. So I'll just throw that out there in case people are interested in how to boost number one, they can go listen to that episode and figure that out. I also thought it was interesting that you mentioned that the USU graduates are more likely to complete a 20-year career in military medicine compared to other pathways like ROTC academies, HPSV, direct accession. Are there any other differences that are measurable between USUs and those other pathways that come in and make up military medicine? Yes, there are. The government did a defense-wide analysis to really look at that, and they published actually their findings in 2019. It was the IDA report, and that report looked at and said a USIS graduate costs about a million dollars to train, whereas it costs about $400,000 to train an HPSP graduate. And that's just looking at just initial entry costs. But what the report said was that there were, when they when they found these statistics, they said, on average, a USIS graduate attends to serve for 15.9 years versus an HPSP graduate that ends up serving an average of nine years with that. And at the same time, they also saw that a USIS graduate spends more time in deployed settings. They actually spend 2.5 times more days in a deployed setting versus a NHPSP graduate. And also they looked at leadership and uh, over time because they end up staying longer, they also take on more leadership roles. And so with USIS graduates, those just the intangible of having leadership and longitudinal time and service were were huge benefits of having USIS. And in the same way, looking at those numbers, they really compared it, comparing to the service academies versus ROTC. And the big statistic that was different with USIS was that the the service academies, I think they have a, a retention rate that's 10% 10% higher than ROTC, 
whereas USIS was 2.5 times higher than, than the HPSB scholarship. And that that translated into a really big benefit for the nation and also a cost savings over time when they looked at various specialties. If you have to replace, if you have to retrain another surgeon in that amount of time, whereas you already have a trained surgeon, there's a cost effectiveness of having that trained surgeon for a longer period of time. And so it actually negated the cost savings of the HPSB scholarship initial entry size of that. So so for all of those reasons, it also talked about just having a central hub for military medicine is what USIS offers. And so for that reason, also, it can actually help direct research specifically designed for the military, where you have a central institution that its main mission is that, and also a, a offering opportunities to help the whole military in the sense that the Uniformed Services Unit offers, we can offer degrees to our enlisted service members who are a radiology tech can actually go through their training down at the MATC, which, which is basically where they have the, they have the training of all of our allied health professions down in San Antonio. But they actually can then finish that training and get a degree, which is actually required in the civilian sector to do many of those specialties. But we are that degree granting institution. And so there's just lots of benefits of having a service academy for medicine at USU. They also said one way to negate the high cost of training our students is to actually increase the class size, which is actually what we're looking at doing now. Instead of an MMA class of 172, we're hoping to increase it to 20 to 30 more students because actually then the cost of training a USU grad comes down because you're increasing students, but actually the cost of the buildings and the structure is all the same. And so you actually get more of a cost savings by actually trading more in it. I will say that we don't have any trouble filling our class. We get highly qualified individuals to fill our class. And, and that actually takes off some of the burden of the health profession scholarship programs that sometimes have years where it's harder to recruit and it's harder to fill all of their requirements uh, for the HPSD program. Whereas we actually would not have trouble filling another 20 seats in our class with the number of applicants and the strong strength of applicants that we get. So USIS is a tri-service medical school. And so are there distinctions in the training based on the service in which someone joins? And then I also want you to explain to us what Gunpowder and Bushmaster are. The differences in the, for the services are will be your initial training. And so before you come to USIS, you're going to do five weeks, five to six weeks of training with your individual service. So maybe students will go to ODS up in Rhode Island. The Air Force students will go to OTS, which is down in Alabama. And then the, the Army students, they'll go through something called the direct commission, the DCC course, and that's in Oklahoma. And so they will go through that training, they'll bond and they'll learn the customs and courtesies of their individual services. However, once they get to USU, the main mission is now to produce physicians, allopathic physicians. The training is the same. In fact, all the services will be, tri it'll be tri-service training. The only differences in, that may occur with the training are where the students may choose to go to different spots where, hey, they're Air Force, they're going to do more, more advanced clinical rotations during their fourth year in Air Force places, just figuring out where they want to go. And also, the some, the some operational experiences will be tailored differently for your individual service. So the Air Force physicians may go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to do flight surgery training, whereas Navy students will actually go down to Naomi, which is the Naval Operational Medicine Institute in Pensacola, to see how flight surgery is done. Those summer operational experiences will be tailored to your service. And so the Army students may get to go to jump school or they may go with operational units in, in the Army. And then Navy students maybe get, go out to ships or even go out to San Diego and see where we, we have our SEAL training. All of those opportunities are available depending on what funding is available. And so the, that is where the training may differ with that. But what's also nice is you also can get, when I was a medical student, I was considering doing surgery and I wanted to go to San Antonio, the military's level one trauma center. And I was like, I want a true surgical experience if I'm going to do this. And so I got to do my training down in San Antonio which was fantastic. And I had a blast doing my surgical training down there as a third-year clerk. So you have the opportunity to go to all of the different services and get to see and get to see the burn unit down in San Antonio, which is the only burn unit in the military down there. And so it was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience for me to get to do that. To answer your second question, gunpowder and Bushmaster. So gunpowder is actually a, an exercise that's done by our third-year medical students. After they finish their clerkships, they will 
actually come back. They'll sit for their boards, take step one. And then there's the period called B3 from the bed, bedside and beyond B3. And during that time, they will learn about go through a process or an exercise called Operation Gunpowder, which actually goes through the continuum of care where you go from the site of the injury and actually take that level of care all the way until you get to the final level of care at the tertiary medical center at you know, Walter Reed or Furrock Army Medical Center. And you will actually, where you go through that whole gamut of care and the students are experienced that and tested on that and say, okay, how do I do this? Interrupt care. How am I taking care of this patient from the battle side all the way to the ICU and managing them at the highest levels? And so the students do this in a 24-hour period where they get to experience this whole continuum of healthcare for them. And they're getting their initial experiences with that and tested on it as well with that exercise. Then Operation Bushmaster is as a fourth year, and it's always done in October. They go to uh, Fort Indian Town Gap, and it is a week-long exercise. We do it in two iterations over two weeks long for the whole class. And during that experience, it's the culmination of all of this training. And so our fourth-year students will get tested on leadership. They'll get tested on their medical skills. They'll get tested on every facet of what happens at a battalion aid station or at a, at a medical unit. And what they will do is they'll take roles as being the, being the surgeon, uh, a part of that unit, being the platoon leader or the platoon commander, the unit's on-site commanders. And they're putting in all these roles and grade it. And, and in fact, you can't graduate from a school if you don't pass Bushmaster. Through that whole week, I mean, it's, it's nonstop operations. It's like being in a deployed setting. They are working and all of a sudden they'll do, they'll do scenarios and they'll have a morning scenario, an evening scenario, and they'll deal with non-battle injuries. Then they'll deal with battle-related injuries and then mass casualties. And then the final event is a huge mass casualty all of the students coming together where they actually deal with a, a big mass casualty situation and how they respond to that medically and also leadership-wise and preparing, preparing for these, these as they come in. So it's really a phenomenal, it's lifelike, it's real experience. I'm so glad I had that experience um, as a medical student because when I ultimately had my real life experience, it was, I'll be honest with you, it took away the nerves because I was like, I've been here before, I've done this. And it was so nice having that feeling beforehand. That being said, if you don't go to USIS and you don't get Bushmaster, you still get some of that training. There's something called C4, Combat Casualty Care. And that's actually, it is the USIS graduates don't have to do C4, but all HPSV graduates will ultimately do that training. And so you will get that experience of dealing with mass casualties. You mentioned that one of the things that you really wanted people to know about USIS is that it exists. Let's say they know it exists. What What is something that people might not know about USUs that you think that they should know? One that exists, but we're also right in the nation's capital. So we're 10 miles down from the Lincoln Memorial. And also we're across the street from the National Institutes of Health. And we're really in an area where there's a lot of research going on. So USUs has a ton of research, congressionally directed research, but also all of the other opportunities that our medical school has. If there is an area of specialty that you're interested in, we're going to have principal investigators and clinicians who are working in those arenas all around us, whether or not it's at USIS, whether or not it's at Walter Reed, also at the National Institutes of Health, where many of our faculty also practice and do research. And then right, really, our campus, our satellite campus, which is the, the annex, is up at Forest Glen, where there's RARE, which is the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, and also the Naval Medical Research Lab, they're all there. And that's right where our SIM center is. It's on the same campus. But when you look at all of the different facets, I think it's also, and in fact, we're going we're gonna to be joining the U.S. News and World Report rankings soon. We used to be in them when I was a medical student here. And we're going to look at, we have a lot of research dollars that are, that are on par with some of the best institutions in the country. And I think that is with all of the, the research funds and, and funding that we have, we're, gonna, we're really probably going to score really high compared to other medical schools as well on that when we go into those rankings. And I think people should know that about us, especially those who are interested in that. Or when you find a special you want, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to do, to do great things in those areas with research. So I think, that, I think that's important to know. I think the other thing to know is about USIS is we are the highest paid medical students in the country. So a USU medical student makes $70,000 a year on top of a free education. A few have a family dependents, you will not come out of here with any debt and they'll actually start saving paying in medical school. And, and I think that's important to note as well. That's it's a great benefit. If you do HPSD, they give you a stipend, which comes out, which is very good too as well. In fact, 
If you get a four-year scholarship, you'll get a $20,000 signing bonus. And then you make about $2,300 a month on the stipend with that. But USU graduates make about double of that with the $70,000 annual salary. And also you're on active duty. So you're covered under TRICARE, just like an active duty service member. So you have great health care and Walter Reed at USIS. And so I think that's also important to know as well about the school that there, there are those benefits, especially we actually... We do get a lot of prior service officers and enlisted who have families that it just makes sense financially to come to uses. Um, and the the other thing I guess that people should know as well, if you are a prior officer or uh, enlisted, you will continue, you will hold the pay. If you were higher ranking, even though all of our medical students are O1s in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, they this was actually changed. It wasn't like this when I went here, but in the mid-2000s, they changed it. Congress said, hey, if you were a captain or a major, before coming to uses, you will retain your pay until you pass up whatever pay you were getting as a medical officer. And so that's actually very nice. So that you medical student who has prior service will even make more than 70000 They will make whatever they were making as a captain or as a major, or, or in some cases, a lieutenant colonel or even a commander uh, that we sometimes get at the school. So before Doug asks his last question, I, I want to know, what is a cardiothoracic fellowship trained radiologist to describe that job to me and tell us your most memorable clinical encounter? Well, a cardiothoracic radiologist, I'm a diagnostic radiologist, but I did a fellowship in cardiac and thoracic imaging. And so what I am is a specialist in any lung diseases. So my primary specialties that I deal with are one, are our thoracic surgeons and our vascular surgeons who deal with aortic work. My fellowship is aortic trauma, acute aortic injury. Anything in the aorta was all my fellowship training. So we focused on aortic injuries, anything in the chest. So interstitial lung disease, lung tumors, mediastinal masses, anything that's in the thorax is in my specialty area. And so if we get a weird interstitial lung disease or a weird, weird infection or just a weird inflammatory response in the lungs, what is this classic pattern for? And here on Walter Reed, we have a thoracic tumor board. I'm a part of those weekly meetings where we discuss the most complex cases in the thorax. The other big part of my subspecialty training is also cardiac imaging. And so I read cardiac MRI. So we're really um, congenital heart diseases developed or really ischemic heart disease and uh, cardiomyopathies. Those are all of the things that I help diagnose with MRI. Also, I read coronary CT angiography. So what that is, is those are CT scans that we look at the heart vessels. And we actually, you hear about sometimes people getting cardiac catheterizations. This is actually sometimes a pre-screen to that to say if someone even needs that cardiac catheterization. And so we can actually look at those coronary vessels and actually comment on if they're mild, moderately or severely stenosed, at least on imaging, uh, which would then push someone to go to a cardiac cath just whether or not to see if they need some type of intervention with that. And so there's a whole, I work very closely with the cardiologists and looking at the coronary vessels and then deciding, you know, do we need to do a perfusion scan or an MRI or a CT perfusion scan? So there's that whole area. And this area of radiology has just drastically grown. Even from when I was a resident in, in 2000, many of the sequences that I read now didn't even exist when it comes to cardiac MRI and, uh, and the way the scanners and as fast as the scanners are, now, I see recoronary CT angiography. These are beautiful images, which we, we couldn't even do this back in 2005. The scanners weren't fast enough uh, to get these images that we do now. At the same time, I'm also biopsy, like I do interventional procedures in the chest. So if there's a mass or a nodule and we're worried about it being cancer, then I can biopsy that and then also manage that individual if I, if I need to put in a chest tube after I do a biopsy. And I also was trained on doing and do radioablation or cryoablation procedures in the chest as well. So an individual who may have a lung cancer, but they're not a surgical candidate, we can do radiofrequency ablation or cryoablation, which is basically where we freeze it. And sometimes that's actually, the freezing is actually really interesting in the sense that a lot of times we'll do it as palliative care. Someone may have like a metastatic lung lesion or it's involving a rib, it's causing severe pain. We can actually kill that with the freezing and actually improve the improve their their life with taking away a lot of that pain with it. So those are all the things that a cardiothoracic radiologist do. And here at Walter Reed, there are actually four of us that are in that specialty because it, and and even that in that regard, there's not enough of us because of all the different things we have to cover every day in that specialty with it. Do you have a memorable clinical experience as a radiologist? You often think our radiologists don't deal with patients. And so I, I was checking out the Naval Hospital Lamore 
and I'm upstairs with all the admin team and I'm, I have my sign off list to leave the hospital. And these, I check in and I, and I was like, I'm coming in and these women are crying and they're giving me hugs and they're like, Oh, we, we love you, Dr. Leo. And I was like, what? I don't come up here. I think I came up here when I checked in and now I'm coming in again when I'm leaving. And they said, no, no, you saved one of their, one of their colleagues' lives because as the radiologist there, I did mammography. And so one of their colleagues came in for a mammogram and identified the mask. And then I ended up biopsying the mask and it was a cancer, but it was very early stage and they were able to resect the cancer and take it out. And, and so that was always, even as a radiologist walking up, like they were so appreciative of what I had done. And I didn't even actually didn't even know it until I left how appreciative they were with that. So that was one of the times as a radiologist where I just was felt really good that, gosh, yeah, what I do matters and that people recognize what we do. I think the second fun one that I have is, and there's several wounded warriors that I've taken care of that have just impressed me. But one of them was, and this was not a wounded warrior, but an individual who I took care of as a surgical intern, and he was a colonel who actually ruptured his aneurysm or ruptured an aortic aneurysm, abdominal aortic aneurysm in the hospital while I was waiting in line to get a prescription at the pharmacy. Well, normally when this happens, people die. They don't, they don't live. But because he was at Walter Reed and, and this happened right then, he got rushed to the OR within minutes. And uh, this individual, we, we ended up as a surgical intern. He, he lost his leg, one of his legs, and literally by all sorts of purposes was in the hospital in the ICUs with us for at least six or seven months. And, and everyone knew him because we were taking care of him throughout that whole year and all the complicated part, the long-term stay, the infections, everything we did taking care of him. And, and I got to know him well because it, and it, I, I took care of him beyond the service or in the ICU with him. Next month, he was on the surgical service, back and forth on neurology problems. I, I saw him throughout the whole year. And he finally, he made it out of the hospital at the end of my internship. And I remember I was rotating on ortho and he was coming in to get physical therapy. And, and this was maybe well, one month as he was out. He comes in, he sees me, gives me a big hug because he, he knew me. And so, and, and that was, that was, that was powerful then, right? But then 10 years later, I'm a radiologist now. And I'm in the reading room and I was reading up a vascular study and it was a reading the order and was run off to the legs. And I looked at the name and I was like, this patient only has one leg. And I was like, I, I recognized the name because I knew this patient. And I was like, oh my goodness, he's still alive. He's still, I mean, this is amazing. And I'm reading his vascular study and they had just did it. And so I went out there and I was like, Colonel, I, I saw him and I recognized he was in his wheelchair and I was able to just go and give him a big hug and, and get to even reunite like, it was, it must have been 10 or 15 years later. I was seeing him and he was still alive. And that was just such a, a joy to see the smile on his face and to just sort of catch up with him, having worked with him as an intern and now working with him as a radiologist, reading his scan, which actually looked pretty good. I was like, is your order looked great? And he actually had, he had patent vessels everywhere. So it was, it was just a fun time to get to see him and to see that he was still alive and well. And all that work we did on him many years prior, he was still living and gracing us with a great life. There's no better place to rupture your abdominal aorta than... than <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll have to ask Ben Harnes, one of our previous guests, because he was a fellow in 2001, whether or not he was one of the people that took care of that patient. So you mentioned that you have six children, and let's fast forward to great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now. If they listen to this podcast somehow, what would you want them to hear from you about your career in military medicine? I guess what I would want them to know is that serving their nation is really just a great privilege and that there are so many amazing opportunities that when you decide to give, if you do that and you take that on with a sense of optimism, that it will really, it will make your life even greater than you could ever imagine. And, and that, if I, if I could leave that or my life could give them that idea, just like my grandfather gave me that. And that doesn't mean there won't be suffering or hardship in that but that there will be a great reward and there will be a great peace in that and a great sense of satisfaction. The military gave me so many opportunities and, and the things I got to see and do and the trust that I was given in, in certain at times when I felt very junior or I didn't feel like, gosh, I can't believe I get to do this or they're expecting me to do this. But one, I was well prepared to do it. And two, being able to do that was such a joy. And I have friends who just practice civilian medicine the whole time. But when I, when I look at the experiences the military gave me, they have not, 
nothing that compares. They really have nothing that can compare to that. And that will start from day one. It'll start in your training because of the people you're dealing with, the camaraderie of that. And now as I'm looking at retirement, pure and simple, I'm going to miss that camaraderie and that that unit cohesion. And that's what I hope I leave or I, I hope people remember after listening to this, this. The military will give you that. It will certainly give you that. And even in the hard times where the things that you may not have wanted to do, you're going to you're gonna look at them fondly at the end because, because you were, it was important. And those are the things I saw. War is terrible, yet there was so much goodness in the people that were out there and that I would go out there and do it in a heartbeat again to be a part of people like that and to be a part of that and, and to do it knowing I'm, I'm helping and I'm greatly needed out there as a physician. Greatest reward in the world. We've been speaking with Navy Captain Dr. Robert Leota. Rob, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs. And thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you both as well. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.